Um, so we are uh, continuing on right now through the study of the Gospel of John. So we actually began this in January, whenever we launched in January 8th, and we're going verse by verse through the entire Gospel. We'll finish sometime around uh, next Easter, right after uh, Easter next year. And so we are jumping right here. We, we've kind of broken it up along the way uh, in different series, so we'll kind of look at two or three chapters, uh, different series, and kind of look at the theme of those chapters. And so we're just starting our new series this week called Never Alone. Never alone, as we walk through John 13 and 14, uh, John chapters 13 and 14, leading into Christmas. So we're kicking off our new series here, going through John 13 and 14. Uh, and if you're here for the first time, again, welcome. I hope there's a place you feel like it's warm, it's welcome. I think one of the things that I love most about this church is the community here. Uh, the people here are just so warm and welcoming. Uh, some of my best friends are here. It's family. It's my favorite time of the week uh, to come here. But it's hard to get a picture of what a church is like just coming once. It's almost impossible. Um, and so one of the things I always challenge people, if you're here for the first time, uh, stick around for a few weeks. So make a commitment. Say, I'll come for four weeks to get a feel for what this church is like. You know, maybe uh, the music wasn't good one week or the pastor had an argument on the way to church uh, coming this morning and he was just off his game, whatever it may be. And you begin to get a feel uh, after four weeks. And at the end of that four weeks, if you go, you know what, I just still, I don't think grace is the place for me. I don't think it's a, a, where we would get plugged in as a family. Listen, that's, that's okay. Uh, we're not the only church around. And, and our goal here at Grace is not just to build our brand. We don't just want to get bigger and bigger and we're the only game in town. Our hope is not to expand grace, it's to expand the kingdom of God. And that can happen at multiple good and healthy churches around here. So at the end of that time, if you go, man, I just don't think Grace is a place where we fit in, come and talk to me. There's a number of pastors I know around here that I love that I can say, hey, go, to, go check out their church. And that's, our, that's a win for us. Uh, as long as we are in a community, in a fellowship somewhere, growing, whether it's here or church down the street, if God is bringing revival, then praise him no matter where it may be. So come for a few weeks. Come for four weeks and say, I want to get a feel for uh, who we are as a church. And At the end of that, come talk to me uh, if there's someplace else you would like to go and visit. So we are kicking off our new series, Never Alone, John chapters 13 and 14. So Jesus has just concluded his public ministry in chapters 1 through 12. We just wrapped up. Now the last um, 13 through 21, this last nine chapters, all deals with the final week of his life and most of it the last 48 hours of his life. So there is a sense of urgency that we're going to feel here is Jesus knows that he's now set his face to Jerusalem and he knows that he's walking towards his death. So each of his words count now at this point. And we're going to get a peek into kind of an intimate conversation. As Jesus is here in the last few days of his life, he's in a room with his disciples, his closest friends, and these are now his parting words. And John, the one whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, is writing about what those conversations were. So we get to kind of peek into um, this conversation to see what did Jesus feel was important to leave his closest friends with. And so we're actually, um, so we're looking at John 13 and 14. What we're going to do today is we're looking at one verse. We're going to jump ahead just a little bit at John 14, 6. And we're just going to look at that verse to kind of set the stage for this entire series and Christmas as well. Uh, and then we'll go back next week to John 13, 1 and kind of pick back up sequentially. So that's where we'll be today in John 14, 6. One of the more famous sayings of Jesus, also probably one of the more controversial, um, as Jesus makes one of his famous I am statements here in the Gospel of John. 
in John 14, 6. If you grab a Bible, you can go ahead and get it. You can grab it, open it up, turn it on, whatever your preference may be. Uh, We'll be in John 14 this morning. If you grab one of the Bibles next to you, uh, that's on page 771, uh, page 771. Um, If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, So the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, verse numbers, the smaller ones will be in John chapter 14, verse 6. And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this is, again, one of the more famous sayings of Jesus, but also one of the more controversial, especially today. Right? These are the kind of claims that people say, well, that's so exclusivistic. That's so, it pushes people to the fringes. It's so narrow-minded to say that Jesus is the way that no one can get to the Father except through him. You're excluding large swaths of people who don't adhere to your beliefs. Are you kidding me? This is 2017. You you would say something like this, and it causes a controversy, causes an argument. But what I want to do, kind of getting started off, before we dive into that verse, I want us to zoom back a little bit and look at the context of what's happening here to see what Jesus originally meant as he said it. As Jesus is here in John, at the very end of John 13, he's telling his disciples that where he is going, they cannot follow him. He says, but you will follow me afterwards. And his disciples are beginning to get a little frantic, right? They've kind of gone all in on Jesus, right? In the first century, uh, whoever your dad was, whatever he did, that's what you did. If he was a fisherman, you'd grow up, you'd be a fisherman. If he was a carpenter, you'd grow up and be a carpenter. Um, if, you were, uh, if your dad was a shoemaker, you'd grow up to be a shoemaker. That's how a lot of last names even got started. I don't know if you know any shoemakers. The, the ancestors were shoemakers, right? We love just clear, obvious stuff here. Um, and so what you would do is you just follow your father's trade. And so a lot of these disciples were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They, were, they had careers that they were pursuing. And as teenagers, they met this guy and they go, okay, there seems to be something different about him. And they turned their back and they left everything. And they went all in on this guy, saying, okay, I believe that he is the Son of God. I believe that he is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He's the one who will restore the Davidic uh, line of of kingdom, and he will bring us back to prominence. He will overthrow this Roman oppression over us, and we will once once again be great like we were in the days of David. This is the Son of God, the Messiah, and we're going all in on him. And they gave up everything. But Jesus here is telling them, hey, I'm about to leave, and by the way, you can't follow me. I'm about to die. And so you can imagine the disciples are going, what do you mean we can't follow you? We've given up everything to come and follow you, and you're just going to bail on us now? You're just going to leave? Are you kidding me? You're going to die? What about all the hopes and dreams that we had? And they're beginning to become frantic. They're beginning to be troubled. So that gets us to John 14, 1, when Jesus looks at his friends. And you can imagine, I just, oh, I just love, I love the grace and mercy of God and the way and tenderness that he deals with his idiot people creation, right? Jesus is here, and I can imagine if I'm in this scenario, and I'm Jesus, and I've told these disciples, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Three years of public ministry, look what I can do. I can raise people from the dead, You just saw that a couple chapters ago. They didn't have chapters back then, but just for the sake of argument. You just saw that a couple chapters ago. I said three words, and a guy who wasn't dead or was dead is no longer dead. 
I could get people who were then blind their whole lives. I can give them sight. And I told you I was going to die. I told you I was going to be raised again. I told you my body would be torn down like the temple. Three days later, I'd raise it up again. And you just still don't get it. And you're sitting here asking me where I'm going. If I'm Jesus right there, I'd be so frustrated. And tell him, God, are you kidding me? I've, I've told you this a million times. I'm leaving. I've got to go and die. It's a different kingdom that I'm bringing. Not the one that you think. It's spiritual and it's eternal. You're missing the point. I've told you all of this. But how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with tenderness. He responds with grace. Right? Even, even as they kind of stumble along, he comes alongside them. And I can't help but think of the image of my daughter who just turned one last Friday. And she's standing up on everything She's starting to walk with holding on to stuff. And so we're trying to get her to let go and start to take steps. And she'll kind of get her center of gravity, wobble a little bit. We'll hold her favorite toy just beyond her reach. And she'll take one step and then fall on the ground. Now, as a father, do I look at that and I go, Millie, you moron, come on, just take a step. Are you kidding me? It's not that hard. Look, you just put one foot in front of the other. What are you doing? Come on. No, that's not what I do as a father. She takes a step and she falls and I start clapping. I go, way to go. That's incredible. I'm so proud of you. And she sits down and she just starts clapping and she feels the praise of her father even in her mistakes. That there's a type of tenderness there. And we see it so much more as God relates to us in the midst of our idiocy in the midst of whenever we blow it and we forget what he's told us, look at how Jesus responds to his disciples in John 14, 1. Not in frustration, but he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. The anxiety that you feel right now, no, don't, don't, let it, let it go. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And so do you hear the context of this conversation? This, this, what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to comfort. He's not trying to cause controversy. The context of Jesus' statement in John 14, 6 comes under the umbrella of let not your heart be troubled. He's coming alongside them in the midst of their anxiety, and he's saying, no, calm, calm down. Believe in God and believe in me. I'm going right now, but it's going to prepare a place for you. Right? I'm going to my father's house, and it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. You got a big, big table. Lots and lots of food. I'll stop before the hand motions start going. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And not only that, I will come back to you. I love this in verse three. I go and prepare a place for you and I will come again and I will take you to myself. Jesus is coming to comfort them saying, no, no, don't, don't let your heart be troubled. Yes, I'm leaving right now, but it's to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make a way back to God for you when there was no way. Right? So we got to kind of get this image out of our head. Jesus isn't going up to heaven like Chip and Joanna Gaines to just do some reno on some nasty apartments up there so that then we'll be ready to go up there. We walk in, it's like, oh my gosh, I only paid 30000 this house and now it's worth 200000 That's not what Jesus is doing here. There's probably not going to be any shiplap in heaven. There may be, I don't know. That's not in Revelation. We'll see when we get there. For those of you who don't understand who Chip and Joanna Gaines, God bless you. Go watch some ESPN or something. 
Um, and so Jesus is here saying, I'm going up to heaven to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make a way back to the Father so that you can once again live with him in perfect communion like it was originally meant to be. And not only am I going to prepare the place, but I will come back and I will take you to myself. You don't have to try to get there on your own. You don't have to try to work your way up. I am coming to you. I will come and take you to myself. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In verse 5, Thomas then said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? So even after Jesus says this, Thomas, again, just poor Thomas, always painted in the Gospels as the guy that doubts. How would you like that to be your nickname, Doubting Thomas? I I, I would be so much worse than Thomas. Anyway, here he is yet again, doubting. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So then it's there in that response that we get verse 6. As Jesus looks at his disciples who are troubled, who are anxious, not knowing where Jesus is going, and he looks at them in the eyes and he tells them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is striving here to give comfort, not controversy. He's striving here to give grace, not just to grumble. He's here to say, here is your hope. And it's not a religious system. It's a person. It's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I want to spend just a little bit of time on each of those things as we move forward. And we'll be looking at uh, each one of those in different Um, in a different point. So four simple points today. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life and Jesus alone. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and Jesus alone. I'm not very creative. I just let the text determine what my outline is. So first, Jesus is the way. What does he mean here? What he means here is he's saying that you need to understand that there is a gap between you and God that you cannot cross. There is this chasm that has now separated you from God because of the choices that we've all made, because of our sin and our rebellion, turning away from God saying, you know what, I think I know better than you do. As we kind of look to him and turn away from what he has told us to do, that has created now a gap that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, every single one of us. And there is now no way back to him. There's nothing that we can do to earn. There's nothing we can do to make our way to him. There is now this impossible situation and an infinite gap because of our sin. And again, you may go, man, why why use words like that? Sin? Who can say what sin is? And not only that, how can there be that much of a punishment, that much of a separation and gap because of a small decision? It doesn't seem like the two match up, right? I hear this all the time. That decisions made here having eternal consequences and eternally separating us from God, those two don't seem to be the same. It doesn't seem like the the crime, the punishment, fits the crime. But again, I've told this illustration before, but I want to share it again because it's just so helpful. Because what we do is we focus in and zero in on the actions themselves and say, you know, I'm not that bad, right? I'm not, yeah, I'm not perfect. But I'm also not that bad, but it doesn't seem like God would punish me just because I didn't believe in Jesus for eternity, separated from him, and he's not going to punish me, pouring out his wrath on me. I mean, there's, there's a million worse people out there, 
Right, you just look through history and you see some incredible examples of evil. Gosh, you look, turn on the news today and you see incredible examples of evil. You look at Gainesville, Florida, and what's happening right now is Richard Spencer, one of the leaders of the alt-right white supremacy movement, is the embodiment of evil that messages from the pit of hell saying that someone is better than someone else just because of what color their skin is. That is evil. All we have to do is turn it on and go, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. And how often do we do that, trying to justify ourselves before God? Right? We come and we like to say, uh, okay, I know I'm not perfect, but well, I'm, a, I'm a lot better than that guy. Right? We do this all the time. We bring other people's unrighteousness before God to try to justify ourselves. It's like the story that we've probably all heard about two guys who were out camping, and they're sitting there, and all of a sudden they hear this rustle back behind them. They turn around, and there's this huge grizzly bear right there, and just lets out this roar. And one of the guys runs into his tent and pulls back out his tennis shoes and starts lacing them up. And the other guy looks at him, he's like, what are you doing? You're, there's no way you're outrunning that bear. He looks at him, he goes, listen, I ain't got to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. That's all I've got to do. Bear will take care of you. He'll be full. I'll be fine. And I worry that a lot of us view God that way as we go, okay, I know I'm not perfect, but as long as I can outrun some of these other people and be better than them, then I should be fine. But friends, that's not the truth of what's happening here. Our sin causes an eternal separation from him. And there's nothing we can do to bridge that gap. And we go, I, I'm not quite sure if that's fair. Again, there, there, I heard this story, um, gosh, it was five, six, maybe seven years ago, maybe me longer. But there was a couple in Washington, D.C. who somehow made their way into this White House event without having any invitation. I don't know if you guys remember this. Not only did they make their way into the event itself, a black tie event, they were taking pictures with Obama whenever he was president, just kind of up next to him, snapping some selfies, populating their Instagram story, like, hey, me and the prez, didn't, weren't invited, just showed up. After it kind of got found out that these people weren't on the list and who knows what they could have done if they didn't do anything but take pictures with the president, they were banned from the city of Washington, D.C., from the entire district. They weren't allowed to come back into the city limits because they showed up to a party uninvited. Now, let me ask you, I may be alone here, but have you ever showed up to a party without an invitation? Right, I, I, I do this all the, not all the time. I did it more before I was married and learned some sensibilities. Right, I think that's one of, the, one of the gifts that God has given man is to give him a woman to make him sensible and no longer a, a caveman. To say, you know what? You actually probably, it's kind of rude if you show up not invited. People are preparing and they have food. And if you just show up, they won't be ready for you. Anyway, I learned these things recently. But in college, before I was married, I just show up all the time. Somebody would hear, oh, they're hanging out. Like, oh, come hang out. That's fine. And I'd show up, and what would happen? Nobody would get really upset, like, oh, I didn't believe, can't believe we didn't invite you. My bad, so glad you're here. Awesome. Oh, you do magic? Cool, do some magic tricks. And it was great. We had a great time. But the reality is that both, for both of those people, we did the same thing. We showed up at a party uninvited, but the consequences were drastically different. And it's not because of what we did, but it was who we did it against. For me, I did it against some 20-year-old college kid in Mississippi. It didn't matter. But those people show up to a party uninvited against the most powerful man in the world. And the consequence was so much greater, not because of what they did, but who they did it against. And so whenever we focus in on our sin and go, you know what, I'm not that bad. Look, I haven't done that much wrong or evil, especially compared to everybody else. We, have, we are looking at the wrong thing. We can't look at what we do, but we have to look at who we do it against.
And what we've done against, the, the person that we've rebelled against, is far more powerful than any president or any king. He is the creator of the universe, the holy, eternal, just one. Whenever we turn against him, then we then deserve a holy, just, and eternal punishment. Not because of what we do, but who we do it against. So there is this chasm between the two of us. And there's no way for us to get back. But Jesus comes and he says, I am the way. When there was no way, I will bridge that chasm. I will come and make a way for you, bridging that divide of sin and death that separates you from what you were created for, to, be, to commune with God, to have a relationship with him, to go back to Eden and walk with him in the cool of the day, to speak to him as a friend face to face, to enjoy God, to worship him forever. That's what we were designed for. That's what we were created for. And our sin made a gap that we could never bridge. But Jesus came. He said, I am the way. I will come and make a way again for you. I will bridge that gap and bridge that divide. Through my death and resurrection, then I will take the sin and the punishment for for that sin, and I will put it to death once and for all. I will look at your final enemy, death, in the face, and I will defeat it and conquer it. I will rise from the grave, and anyone who believes in me, I then will give you that same life. And there it will now be a way back to God when there was no way before. And Jesus came and he said, I am the way. There is no other. And so as we stand and we look on one side of the Grand Canyon to the other, and we need to get to the other side, and there's no way to get there, and it seems hopeless, and all of a sudden, this bridge just kind of appears. We go, you know what? There's no other way to get there, but thank God that this bridge is here. And we walk across. Jesus comes, and he says, I am the way. But he doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, I am the truth. See, Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth of God. Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth of God. We may go, well, who is Jesus? Is he a man? Was he God himself? Was he a philosopher? Was he an ethicist? Ethicist? Something. Did he, did he concentrate in ethics? Who was Jesus? Well, the Bible talks about Jesus as the self-revelation of God. John actually calls him the word of God. God spoken to us. He is in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So who is Jesus? He is, in the truest sense, God. He is fully man and fully God. And so sometimes we may go, well, I, I want to know what God is like. I want to know what he looks like. I want to know what, he's, what he does and what he likes and how he speaks. Well, listen, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God. And what we see in Jesus is this stunning mix of holiness and mercy, of truth and grace. Right? And we see it throughout the Gospels. We see it with how he handles the disciples here. He doesn't just come and crush them in the midst of their idiocy. He comes with mercy and tenderness. Right? If you remember back, the woman at the well, this woman who was a serial adulterer, who had left and divorced multiple uh, men as husbands. She was currently living with a guy who was not her husband. She was a social outcast, had to go to the well at the heat of the day to make sure she didn't see anybody else. She was completely outcast. And Jesus goes to her. And he has a conversation with her when no one else will. And he handles her and speaks to her with mercy and with grace and truth. 
are the woman who was caught in adultery. As these people drag this woman who was caught in the act of adultery and throw her at Jesus' feet and say, what are you going to do with her? Right? She is the one who has sinned. We've caught her in the midst of it. What are you going to do trying to trap him? And Jesus, in one of the more famous stories, looks around and he says, let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And slowly people drop their rocks and they walk away. And he bends down and he looks at this woman in the eyes. And perhaps for the first time, this woman has a man looking at her and doesn't want anything from her. And he looks at her in grace and mercy. And he says, who is left to condemn you? And she said, no one. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Truth and grace. There has never been another like him. Because you see, in that moment, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but in that moment, as Jesus said, let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone, there was someone there who was without sin who had the right to cast a stone. And he didn't. He instead sat down, stooped down to her, looked at her in the eyes and showed her grace. This is unreal. And this is, as we begin to wonder, who is God? What is the truth of God? Who is he and how does he interact with his people and his creation? We don't have to look any further than Jesus. If you want to know how God interacts with the worst of people, look at Jesus. And what we see is this incredible picture of grace and mercy and truth. Goodness, the tax collectors in the first century, these guys were the worst. They were actually the worst. These were Jewish men who would take money and tax their own countrymen to fund the oppression of Rome who were pillaging, raping, and taking over the entire country. And not only that, they were then taxed extra so that they could get rich in the process. These guys were the worst. They were hated. But we keep seeing them pop up throughout the Gospels. We keep seeing guys like Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. But these are the people that Jesus doesn't just come in contact with. He goes into their homes. He sits down with them. He eats with them. Gosh, one of them wrote one of the Gospels, Matthew. These are some of the people in Jesus' inner circle. So how does God deal with the worst of people? He comes with mercy and grace and truth and holiness. God deals with people in tenderness. So if we want to know what is the truth of God, who is he? We have to look no further than Jesus himself. So Jesus is the truth. He is the truth of who God is. He has revealed that to us to give us life. And that finally leads us to the last point, that Jesus is the life. Yes, he's the way. He's made a way when there was no way. He is the truth, the self-revelation of God, showing us who God is and how he interacts with his people. But also he is the life. He is the life. And he offers it both for the now and the not yet. For the now and the not yet. Right? Often we may hear and we may kind of get to a point where we understand, okay, yes, God has come and saved me. I have the gospel. I believe it. I now have eternal life. And Christianity almost can feel sometimes like we're just waiting for heaven. Oh, we just got to kind of put our heads down, get through this terrible part, and then we'll get to heaven one day. Well, listen, if all we were doing is just waiting to get to heaven, whenever we believe, God would have just sucked us up there. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm having to stop myself from making a bad Star Trek reference right now. Um, beam me up, Gotti. Anyway, I did it anyway. This guy, I, could, I actually couldn't help myself. Okay, so if that was true, if, God, if the goal of the gospel was just to get us to heaven, he would have just sucked us up right when we believed, but that's not what he did. One, because that would be weird. 
And then two, because that's not the way in which he's designed it. That's not his plan. He's instead rescued us from an impossible situation, making a way when there was no way. And he's placed his very spirit now within us. And now he's using us as heralds of this good news, this gospel, that there is now a way back home. There is a way to have communion once again with God. There is a way to restore this fractured and broken relationship. There is a truth to be known. There is a way home. And there is true life. And he's talking about now. He's not just talking about not yet. He's come to give us life today. And this is one of the great misconceptions of Christianity, I think. We talk about this often. I can't beat this drum enough because it's easy to characterize Christianity as just a set of rules that we do some things and we have to stay away from other things. And it's almost this picture of kind of begrudging submission. Okay, I'll just put my head down. I'll make my way through. I'll just do what I've got to do. Listen, God is not after begrudging submission. You see it throughout the Bible. God doesn't just care about your obedience. He cares about your heart. And he wants your heart. He wants your worship. He wants you to come back to him, knowing that whenever we begin to worship him, it's what we were designed to do. And when we do what we're designed to do, we begin to thrive and flourish in a way that nothing else in this world can offer us. Because we are all created to worship. Every single one of us. You may go, oh, no, that's not me. I'm not really a worship kind of guy. Listen, last night was college football, and I guarantee you there are some men who say they aren't worshipers that were getting rowdy last night. Alabama's beating Tennessee 45 to 7, and you see all across Tuscaloosa men going crazy. And so I don't believe the lie that people say they aren't worshipers. We all worship something because we were created to. But the problem is, is we're looking for things in this earth to try to fill that void of what we were created to worship. And listen, I know that Nick Saban's incredible, but there's going to come a time when Alabama football is going to let those people down. And it can't fulfill what they were created to worship. And we try all we can to try to cram something in that, that, that reflex that we have to worship, whether it's our jobs, maybe our families. Goodness, our kids, you see this all the time. People try to worship and find fulfillment and joy and satisfaction through their children. But listen, the reality is, is they can't do it. Twofold, you will be let down and you will crush them with a weight that they can't bury, that they can't carry. With our spouses, they can't fulfill you. They cannot. Don't put that on them. They can't do it. They will not bring you joy in the way in which you were designed to have it. It will leave you frustrated and wanting more and always looking for something better. And it will crush them under the weight of your expectation. Listen, wives and children and jobs, they are good things created by God, but they are crummy gods. They can't carry that weight. And so, yes, we were designed to worship, but there's only one who can truly fulfill our worship. There's only one who will not let us down. There's only one that whenever we come to him, we begin to thrive and fulfill our deepest desires and satisfi uh, satisfactions, right? I mean, there's a great philosopher back in the 70s that wrote, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> but he nailed it. He's exactly right. There is nothing here in this world that can satisfy what you were created for. There's only one who can bring that kind of life, and it's Jesus. He will never let us down. Money, 
more money, a better marriage, more obedient kids, sexuality, a better job, a nicer house, whatever it may be, it will not satisfy you. Hear me say that. Having more of what doesn't make you content right now will not make you content. You hear me there? For some reason, we believe if we just had more of the stuff that we already have that doesn't make us content, if we just had more of it, then we would be content. Friends, it won't. You'll get there and it'll just let you down again. Read Ecclesiastes. Listen to some of the most famous celebrities around today and hear how terrible their life is because they finally reached the end of it and they've seen, wow, this really can't satisfy because there's only one who can. There's only one who brings life. And all of these thou shalts and thou shalt nots and these commands in the Bible, they are given not just for our begrudging submission, but they are, given, uh, they are given to us to lead us to life. They're guardrails to say, if you operate in these boundaries, then you will fulfill what you were created to do. You'll begin to thrive and flourish and have life today. Jesus is the life. And lastly, Jesus alone. Jesus alone. There is no other way. Again, people go, man, this is 2017. You kidding me? You're going to be that exclusivistic to say that there's no other way? That's ridiculous. And that, that is pressing in the one virtue that remains in our society, and that's tolerance. This is the one thing that we hold up to say, okay, as long as we tolerate everyone, then, then that's really the only thing that matters. And this flies in the face of that. And people go, it's narrow-minded, it's bigoted, and it's ridiculous. Well, let me kind of step back and, and put it another way. If I was to say, if I say, okay, Christ and Christ alone will give you life, people will go, oh, that's narrow-minded. But if I were told you that food and food alone will give you life, is that narrow-minded? Is it narrow-minded to say, hey, if you don't eat, you're going to die? And it's food that gives life. Right? We've just switched our, our daughter uh, onto uh, real food from formula, and it's done something... It, amazing in her diaper afterwards it has different kinds of smells that are just the worst but the reality is if she's not eating that food then she her body will begin to shrivel it will actually begin to shrink why because food was given and designed to give her life to help her grow to help her thrive and flourish and it's only food that can do that and that claim that it's food and food alone that gives life it's not narrow-minded it's not bigoted it's actually gracious and wise Say, listen, there's no other way. Millie, you have to eat your chicken. You've got to eat your peas. If you don't, your body will begin to shrivel. Friends, it's the same thing with Christ. As when we come and Jesus says that there is no other way, it is Christ and Christ alone. That claim of exclusivity is not narrow-minded. It's gracious. It's Jesus coming and saying, here is the way back home. Here is truth that brings life. And without enjoying the one who made your soul, then your soul will begin to shrivel. Your soul will begin to shrink. There is no other. It's not narrow-minded, it's gracious. Again, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, once that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And here Jesus comes and he says, you were, you were made for another world. You were made for a home that this world currently is in a broken and fallen state. But I have come to make a way. I have come to bring truth. I have come to bring life. And there is no way back to that except through me. Listen, the message of Christianity is really kind of clear. It's that Jesus is better. 
that Jesus is better than anything that this world can offer. And our problem is not that we find ourselves too strongly desiring things of this world and not desiring God enough. The reality is that our desires aren't strong enough. Again, C.S. Lewis nailed this. He wrote about this. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition whenever infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, this is the message of Christianity. To stop playing with mud pies and come enjoy the holiday at sea. To come experience the infinite joy that's offered in Christ. Not having to try to reject what you want to do and follow what you don't want to. It's holding out to say, listen, here is Christ, the one who is better than anything else in this world. Everything that has let you down, here is one who will not. Come, he is better. He is better than your relationship with your spouse. He is better than your relationship with your children. He is better than all of the money that you can accumulate, all of the power and fame that you can build for yourself in this life. He is better than any promotion motion that you can try to earn. He is better. He is greater than any trial or circumstance or suffering that we go through because he gives us hope in the midst of us. He gives us a way in the midst of a way when there was no other way. He gives us truth whenever there was none. He gives us life whenever there was none. He comes and he says, I am better. Would you choose me? Stop being so easily pleased and come to me and you'll find rest and you'll find hope, and you'll find life. And so if you're here for the first time, or maybe you've been coming for a few weeks, and you're trying to figure out, what's this church all about? Right, who are they? What are they? What's kind of their thing? Let me just pull back the curtain for you. We are here at Grace exclusively and unapologetically about Jesus Christ. We exist to make much of him and to help people take their next steps towards him. Because he is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. He came to bring us home, to make a way when there was none. And because of him, we'll never be alone again. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for sending your son and for saving us. God, for making a way when there was none, for speaking truth to us and revealing who you are and how you relate to us. God, in bringing us life both today and for eternity. God, help us to rest and believe and trust that in the midst of everything that bombards us in our life, that we would believe that truth, that you are better. We love you. We thank you so much for your son, for sending him and saving us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.